Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look there at a what I think is probably one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. This is how it affected me when I read it the first time. Uh, I think I told you I spent some time talking to my pastor afterward. I was like, I'm not sure what to make of uh, this uh, passage. It's very difficult. But uh, we're going to look at it today. I think it's timely and and helpful. And um, it's in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning with verse number 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And there the Bible says, Therefore leaving... The discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and put him to an open shame for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the difficult places that cause us to think deeply and uh, give us pause or concern as we know that they are uh, for our good. And we pray that by your spirit you help us to uh, reason and understand and God to uh, see your purposes in heart in giving us this word from you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. The uh, title of the message today was uh, Hold On, Persevering in an Age of Deconstruction. And uh, maybe uh, you have not really interacted very much with deconstruction as a concept, but it's definitely a popular topic uh, in these days when people are uh, deciding to move past Christianity, or not past Christianity, but to say, hey, this isn't a priority to me anymore. This doesn't reflect what I believe anymore. And a lot of times that will be referred to as deconstruction. Like I'm taking my faith apart. I'm reexamining. And sometimes that can happen in a healthy way for people. They go, well, as I look at this, it's not really an essential biblical idea. So it should be something that I don't hold on to. But unfortunately, in a negative way, what's happened with this concept of deconstruction for some people is that they have said Christianity is unfashionable, Christianity is untrue, it's not something that I'm going to hold on to anymore, and so the tenets of it do not match my understanding of a modern world, and so they quit following Jesus. And some famously, uh, Joshua Harris, and I don't, I'm not saying a person's name to uh, like if they were in the room, I, would, I wouldn't want to hurt their feelings at all. But it's just uh, 
it's public, okay? So these people publicly have said, and Joshua Harris was a pastor who wrote a book that um, a lot of people my kid's age would have known. He wrote a book called Kiss, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And then he went on to become a pastor of a very large church. And then he basically said, I don't believe this anymore. And even uh, started to teach a class on deconstruction of your faith. And I think was <clears throat> maybe thought better of it after a bit. But Derek Webb would be another person that people would know from Christian, uh, contemporary Christian music. Cademan's Call who basically had, you know, a website and written extensively, <coughs> excuse me, about his thoughts of, on deconstruction and uh, no longer really holding to what we would say are fundamental tenets of Christianity that if you let go of them, you really can't say I'm a Christian anymore. You've stopped being a Christian and started to be, to be something else, a non-believer. And so I think when we read this passage, we can see Guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. That's what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes. You know, we think, hey, this is sudden, disturbing, alarming. It concerns me very much that somebody that was a pastor has said, I don't even believe that anymore. And, of course, that should sadden us, right? It makes me feel sad to, to think that someone who proclaimed the gospel, who was known among evangelicals all over the country, has now said, no, I don't believe that anymore. Or someone who is an incredibly talented musician who had a platform that he stood in front of people and proclaimed the praises of Christ and led them to worship, now says, nope, I don't believe that anymore. You know, the way it makes me feel initially is sad for for that being a reality. But sometimes the effect that it has on people is to cause them to feel threatened. Like, hey, what if they're right? What if the, what they're saying is true? And what I believe is not true. And so I think it's important to go back to the scripture and see that God anticipated this reality. That some people would say, okay, yeah, I've been a part of this world. I've seen what it's about but I don't believe it anymore. I'm moving beyond it. And see what the scripture says about, about that. So, you know, for our part, I think that what the effect of this passage has on me now is that it's, um, it's helpful, it's comforting, uh, because now I know that there will be people sometimes in the world who denounce and abandon faith in Christ, and yet the Bible says there's a way to keep anchored in our hope. And really you see that throughout Hebrews that there's an encouragement to remain anchored in the hope of the good news of Christ and not set it aside and not, not uh, say, hey, that's not my belief anymore. So here there are uh, some ideas we'll see. The first one in this passage is that we need to heed the admonition to maturity. The scripture says that God is calling us on to maturity. Therefore, leaving behind the elementary discussions, he says the first principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. The word perfection there is maturity, completion, the goal, the end of what God had in mind when he called you out of darkness and into light. And when he made you his own, there is an ongoing purpose. He says there are some fundamentals that you'll, you'll see, but the, after, afterward, we're encouraged to continue to mature and to grow. We saw that last week when we talked about the idea of, uh, 
you know, babies, and uh, we said moving beyond milk, okay, not uh, honey, right, Parker? <laughs> but moving beyond milk as we get from milk to meat. You know, we advance, we grow. That was an inside joke. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so the Bible is saying babies start out on milk. That's right. That's where we want them, but not always. There's a point out here where they ought to be uh, taking on solid food, and it's a picture of the spiritual uh, life that we start out, we know a little, we add to it, and we said even information's not the goal. It's the internalizing of truth, the internalizing of it so that it becomes part of our character and we are wise because our uh, practices and decision making routinely add up to godly character and that's how the Bible thinks about maturity so he's saying move on past these fundamentals we know that the Bible says fundamentals matter there's no foundation that anyone can lay than that which is laid the writer in 1 Corinthians says and that foundation is Christ there is a starting place, and if you don't have the foundation right, then nothing else is right. There is a gospel to be believed, the good news. The good news is basic, and it's the same everywhere in the world for all time. That is essentially that people were created by God, made in his image. We talked about it in Sunday school and Bible study today. But people departed, made a decision to separate, that separated them from God even though God continued to love us and continued to work out a plan for our redemption. And that plan culminated, came to its, con its conclusion in the arrival of Jesus. Jesus came, the only perfect human, the second Adam, the one who was create was not created but who became a man, a human, had a human history, the eternal God put on flesh, and Jesus Christ came on a mission to save, to secure our salvation and to buy our pardon. And the Bible says, now whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Jesus came on a mission, died on a cross, was placed into a tomb, rose again the third day, ascended into heaven. These are what the creeds and the scripture teach about the gospel. The gospel is good news. Good news is God translates a person whose life is in darkness and uh, takes them and brings them into light. I liked how we talked about that in Bible study today. I think most people live a counterfeit life. They, like Jonathan talked about, they, they're living a life, but it's not the life. They're living life, but it's a counterfeit life. It's an imitation of what God's best is. His best is people in relationship with him, connected to him, worshiping him. He, that's what he wants out of every human life, no matter where you are in the world, is that we would know Jesus and worship God and worship him in spirit and in truth and being con connected to him in worshiping community, proclaiming the praises of the one that called us out of darkness into his marvelous light is the way the uh, scripture puts it. So fundamentally, we know that the Bible says when we're talking about moving on with this foundational reality, that's what we're talking about. And we're talking about the, the um, reality that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. There is no kind of Christianity <clears throat> that doesn't include that very basic reality, that each day when I wake up, I wake up as a servant to my master, my master and Lord. He's the one who's 
well done, I want to hear at the end of my life. He's the one who I want to please every day. Can I say that I always do that perfectly? No, I cannot. Of course not. However, it is my ambition and my goal when I wake up to please him. It's my goal when I don't please him to repent and to uh, be right with him in my fellowship. So these are, when we think about fundamentals, we're talking about this kind of stuff. And uh, the scripture is clear in Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 5 and following that we add to our faith sustaining qualities. And there's a, a lot that the scripture says there add to your faith and it gives us you know basically what the fruit of the spirit looks like in your practice how how does it look to be kind and how does it look to you know you know have the love of God function in my life and to live a self-controlled life and so we add to this faith through our practice we participate in sanctification so sanctification a bible word that we you know, we hear, what does it mean? The root of it is holiness. Holiness, sanctification just means to grow in holiness so that our lives reflect more and more our, our creator and the one who, who made us to be in fellowship with himself. So when we think about sanctification, that's all it means is growth in godliness. So in obedience, we give evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in us. I saw this quote this week from Vance Habner. I don't know how many of you would know Vance Habner, but he was a, a, a very homey uh, preacher that people quote all the time because he deserves to be quoted because he had some great thoughts. But he said, too many Christians live their Christian lives inside their hearts. It never gets out through their hands and feet and lips. But that's not what Christianity is supposed to be. It's not an ideology. It's a way of life. It's a lifestyle as God forms us into little Christ, right? The word Christian meant those who were imitating Christ. And so that's the idea that we see when we think about the fundamentals. I saw this quote from someone this week that I thought was helpful, although not, um, uh, you know, it doesn't touch on everything that we want to see here. But this writer, Eric Hoke, said, said Hoke, H-O-K-E, signs of Christian maturity include unwillingness to be easily offended. That's a sign of maturity. The extraordinary capacity to forgive. And third, the simple ability to laugh at yourself. That's pretty good. It doesn't hurt once in a while to take yourself a little less seriously. You know, I uh, had a bad morning one day this week and later in the day texted my wife because I'd read this quote that said, life is too serious to be so serious. And I thought, this is a good quote for me today. I'm just a little too serious. And I need to tone it down a little bit and sort of enjoy life. So those are some good things. But the Bible here gets to some really um, fundamental things when it says, what are the foundational truths it talks about in this passage? It says repentance from dead works. That's one of the things that's listed. Repentance from dead works. What does that mean? Well, I think what it means is changing your mind about how you're right with God because dead works are works which would be done to try to get life. You know, that's, the, that's weird to think about. But dead works are works which people do to try to get life. We think if I can just be a better person, then that's what it's about. God wants me to be a better person. Well, he does, but the problem is your sin has alienated you from God, and there's not one righteous. 
And so dead works are practices that are committed to by people in an effort to win God's approval. And he says move beyond that. That's, that's a fundamental truth is you can't earn God's favor through the works of your life. Then it goes on and uh, talks about faith in God as an aspect of the foundational things. The Hebrews uh, 11.6 we'll get to eventually says, but without faith it's impossible to please God for those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who carefully seek him. So you can't please God without faith. Faith is uh, belief in God, but belief is commitment in Bible talk. So when the Bible talks about faith, it means commitment. Not just, again, assent in your mind, but commitment with your life, which is not the same thing. So faith in Christ, then baptism, it talks about as a fundamental, ablutions is the word in the uh, scripture, cleansings with water, it has this idea. And what baptism is in Christian understanding is a first step of obedience to Jesus. So it, it basically, we plunge in, right? We say um, the liturgy that I always heard in baptism and that I think reflects Romans chapter uh, 6 and what it says there really well is that we're buried in the likeness of his death and we're raised in the likeness of his resurrection. So the, it's a visual picture of the idea that the old me is dead and the new me is living as a worshiping uh, person and that now it's a first step of obedience so that the rest of my life is committed to Christ in perpetual obedience and, and growing. So baptism is important. It is not the saving power of God, I don't believe, in the New Testament, but it is a symbol that we've received into ourselves new life. It is a symbol of the cleansing of the gospel through Christ and his death and burial and resurrection. And then it goes on and talks about laying on of hands, which we could say any number of things might be associated with that. In the Bible, to begin with, they uh, passed on the, an understanding that a person received the Holy Spirit through laying on of hands. When you read Acts, you see incidents where people received the Spirit through laying on of hands. You also see that it was associated with healing in the New Testament, they, that they would lay hands and anoint people and pray for their healing. You see that it's associated with ordination in Scripture or with the identification and the sin. There are things that we could say are possibly true about what he means there, but he talks about that as a foundational idea that they would be familiar with. Then he talks about the resurrection of the dead. He says this is basic, that the Scripture teaches reanimation of corpses, you know, there are uh, cemeteries all over the place that the Bible says those bodies, the, that reanimation is part of God's plan for the world. You can't read the Bible without understanding that resurrection is a Christian reality. That reanimation uh, to further life or rejection to endless death and conscious alienation. And it talks there also about eternal judgment eternal judgment. He says these are basic Christian realities. If there is no penalty for sin, I thought about this recently, why did Jesus come and die? 
If there is no penalty. What is Jesus saving us from? When we talk about Jesus as Savior, what's he saving us from? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He's saving us from what the Bible talks about as the judgment of eternal death. And when you see what Jesus himself taught about hell, like in Luke chapter 16, it's very apparent that it's awareness, it's remorse, it's regret, it's torment. And so we think about when the Bible talks about if all we needed were lessons, Jesus would not have come and died. He could have just come and taught lessons. But that's not what he did. He came, he died, and he was raised from the dead, and he demonstrated that cosmic justice was at issue. Cosmic justice. That God's justice had to be satisfied. And the only way it could happen was through an innocent, the innocent victim who was also God, who we worship. And that's why we, why we worship. And it may make us uncomfortable to talk about heaven and hell, but the Bible make it plain that they exist and are real. And it's a basic biblical truth. And so we advance beyond these basic truths. That's what the scripture says here that we are to do, to mature. And then it takes an abrupt turn in verse, chap, uh, chap, verse 4, uh, verses 4 through 8, where we see this warning about the possibility of falling away. Secondly, the warning about the possibility of falling away. The, there is a word for that that is used, uh, and that word is apostasy, apostasy or an apostate. Uh, the next slide, this one first. Go back one, Donnie. <clears throat> and let's look at it because I liked how it was treated in this version of the Bible. It's impossible because this is the troubling verse for me. Okay, when we look at this passage, what is it saying to us? Why does it uh, say what you know what it says here? It's impossible to keep on restoring people to repentance time and again is uh, the way that this translation puts it. So the the uh, first, what is an apostate, and what it, what about? Uh, the apostate is being said here. The word, you can go there. Apostate, apostasy. This is a Bible idea, okay? A person who adamantly denies Christ, falling away from the faith they once proclaimed. That is an apostate. That's what the scripture talks about. That's why I'm talking about it. It says the person who, and it gives us a list of their, it talks about their experience, what had happened to them in this passage. And it gives us a description that includes this when you look at verse 4. It says they had been once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, had become sharers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of God's word, powers of the coming age. That was what they, their life had been marked by. This person, we would say, this. the next slide I think explains how I understand this person. They professed faith but did not possess faith. They were familiar. They, they had become comfortable with the verbiage. They, they could maybe give you some definition. says they were, they were inoculated by that experience so that they became immune 
to the gospel because the problem that the Bible identifies about the apostate, the one that falls away, what does it say about him in this passage? It says it's impossible to renew him to repentance. And, and so we would say, well, things that are impossible with uh, God. So some of the people that we named before who have adamantly rejected Christ or others that aren't famous but who have adamantly rejected Christ. Is there a pathway for that person to come back to redemption? Well, the history of the church says that it is exceedingly difficult for the person who adamantly rejects Christ to return to Christ because they have so hardened their heart. That's the danger that's being warned against is a person who understood, was familiar with all that Christianity meant, maybe sat in worship services week after week, maybe identified as a follower of Christ, but somewhere out there in their future they said, nope, I don't believe that anymore, is that the danger is that that person becomes so hardened in that position that they find it impossible to return to repentance. Because there is there another way? Is there some other Christ? No, there's not. The Bible says that Jesus said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What was the testimony of the apostles? The apostles said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among heaven, among uh, by whom we must, must be saved. There's not an alternate way to come back. They would have to come back the same way, through repentance, through uh, humility, through acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus. And they have decided that that's not the uh, way that they think or believe. And so the scripture gives an uh, illustration here of that would be kind of like the parable of the sower. If you remember the sower, the sower cast seed. It says some of it threw, uh, landed on a pathway and was packed hard, didn't grow up. Some of it fell among stones. Some of it fell on thorny ground. But some of it fell on uh, fertile soil and it grew up and produced a crop. That was the good seed, the, the soil rather. And the Bible uses a very similar illustration here of earth. It says the, uh, the, the, if the earth doesn't yield fruit, what would we look for that would be helpful? If you plant a garden, like Barney brought us greens, you know, that's good. Like what pops up, tomatoes, we like that. Uh, some people are talented and can do that kind of thing. I always just kill that stuff off with overwatering or underwatering or whatever. I don't know. But some people can do that. And the ideal that you want if you plant a garden is good things, right? You want stuff to, that you can bring inside and cook and can and, you know, pass along. But you definitely don't want thorns and briars. That's not your goal. And that's the illustrations that you used here. If what comes out of a person's life is not useful, not just to humanity, but from God's point of view about what usefulness means, he says that that's, that person's, the outcome of their life is useless. We would say, man, that is severe. 
to think that if my life isn't producing what God said it should, then the outcome and the end is useless. But here's God's purpose for every human being is that we would worship and proclaim his name. And that all of the works of our life would point to him and give glory to him. And so if the things that we're doing, that's, it's not even to say that a, a person who doesn't acknowledge God, an atheist or an agnostic or someone who has known Christ and then rejected him, it's not to say they couldn't do good things through their life. It's just saying that they will have missed the purpose of life, which is to glorify God and worship God. And so he says it's, all, it's like ground. That in the end, it produced thorns and briars, but nothing useful and good as God understood it. So in the end, God's perspective will be the one that matters. His will be the one that matters. And so this passage, when we look at it, we, we, um, here's a quote by C.S. Lewis. It's attributed to him anyway. There's a bunch of false quotes, but I think this one is accurate to him. He says, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right, then have it your way. In the end, some people are going to have it their way, but it won't be a way that they'll ultimately be glad they went. There's a way that seems right to a man, the end thereof are the ways of death, the scripture says. So the third aspect of this passage that we see is that we are encouraged then to hold to the assurance given to authentic believers. Verse uh, 9 here through the end of this passage goes on and it uh, talks about... The, uh, let's see, I'm in an unfamiliar Bible. <laughs> Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that point to salvation. So here's, here's encouragement. Who, who is an apostate? The person who adamantly denies Christ. Adamantly denies Christ. So it, it clarifies for us. It doesn't, it's not speaking to a person who worships Christ but struggles, is moving forward haltingly, uh, one, uh, two steps forward, one step back. That's how I do it. denies Christ is the, is the apostate they've fallen away but he says no we, have, we consider better things we think better things about you things that accompany salvation so you know I think about things I might want to scuttle on my way to a mature faith I've been in church most of my adult life for you know 35, 36 years week after week all that time I've seen legalism in churches, you know, stuff that had nothing really to do with God, like, hey, your hair's too long, you don't need a TV in your home. TV might not be helpful, but it's legalism to say you can't have one, that you can't enjoy certain things in life. Legalism is when we uh, define God by all the rules and things that we do. So I've been in churches where legalism was a problem, or I've seen it up close and personal. It's no fun, joy-killing. I've seen power struggles in churches where you had factions and people that couldn't get along and people that were determined to be in control. I've seen that. I've seen racism in churches where people were determined that only people that looked like them could go to church with them. I've seen that in churches. I've seen 
you know, issues like gossip be so destructive in the fabric of a fellowship that you, you, there was no way for God to be uh, flourishing in the way that he wanted to among those people. I've never seen that in Jesus, though. I've never seen it in Jesus. I've seen it in people who claim to be like Jesus, but I've never seen it in Jesus. So I just think all along the way, there's stuff that people ought Get rid of it, but don't get rid of Jesus. God isn't in the worst things we see in other professing Christians. He's not in that. God doesn't vary or change. He is not harsh or demanding. That's When you read about God in the Bible, there's that illustration of the talents where the person misassigns something to God. He says, I knew that you were a harsh man. That's why I went and buried my talent in the ground. He mischaracterizes God. God's not harsh and demanding. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank God he's compassionate. He's not spiteful. I see spiteful behavior in followers of Jesus sometimes. Spiteful. The attitude that we have about stuff, I'm like, I do not understand it. The way we communicate with the world sometimes. Spiteful. God's not. He's mindful of what's right, and he does what's right. That's what it means when it says he's just. He's not unjust to forget your labor and and your service and ministry. The work that he sees, he remembers and he rewards. He saw their service. They gave themselves to build God's kingdom. And we forget sometimes even the best parts of of ourselves. Think about that when in Matthew 25, you remember how Jesus says that one day he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. You remember that parable? And he says he'll put the goats on one side, the sheep on the other. And the goats will have been people who uh, served, they saw need, they met it, they went to those that were incarcerated and they cared for them. And they, and they gave of themselves. They saw a person without clothing, and they clothed them. But what, you remember what they said, when, Lord, when did we do that? He said, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. But they didn't even remember the good that they had done. But you know who doesn't forget? God. He says, I'm not unjust to forget your labor. I'm not unjust to forget your service. I'm not unjust. He remembers and he rewards God sees our perseverance. And the scripture says here that we're, you know, we're encouraged to persevere in, in these good things. Instead of being becoming lazy, be imitators of those who inherit the promise. And it encourages us to zeal and uh, diligence. You remember what Jesus said to the Laodicean church? He said, I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's an important reminder in this day of apathy and indifference. He says, I see your works. And if, if Christ is the most important person in our life, in all the world, he is worthy of our zeal. He's worthy of our passion. Apathy should be the farthest thing from what characterizes a person who follows him. But instead, passion. 
for for and I don't just mean emotionalism. I just mean as a priority because that's the making Christ the priority in our life. We talked about laziness because the scripture here uh, says talks about it when it ends on that note. Instead of becoming uh, being lazy, it says or dull. We talked about last time. So what laziness is? I thought about that this week. Laziness is failing to have godly spiritual priorities. It's not that like you don't get pats on the back at work because you work hard. You know, people say, hey, this person uh, is admirable. They do a great job. No, it's saying when the Bible talks about this here, it's talking about our spiritual priorities, that the priorities of our life, we don't have them uh, the way that God would want them to be. So if we have to cast aside fundamental biblical tenets, I thought about this, to attract people to church, there will be nothing left to sustain them if they come. This is what's happening now. You know, sometimes people are saying, well, this doctrine offends people. You know, the idea that there's eternal punishment or the idea that only God gets to define uh, human sexuality. That offends people. We better, you know, do away with that. Well, if you can attract them with something like that, there will be nothing to sustain them once they get there. There will be no truth. And so the, the Bible says you just have to persevere in God's revealed truth. Don't make it up yourself. You persevere in what God says. The scripture says in Jeremiah 6, 16, this is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. Ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Or the older translations say, keep to the old paths. Keep to the old paths. Don't try to make up your own route. Just do it God's way. There will always be pressure to cast off biblical realities as outdated or on the wrong side of history, or puritanical, but we have to resist that cultural advance, as it's falsely so-called. Again, Vance Habner, one man with God is a majority, he says. One man with God is a majority. If people denounce and abandon faith, that's tragic, but we shouldn't let it derail us and I can tell you it, when you read and you see and you, you see what's happening it influences people it's intended to the idea that this person has said Christianity is a lie will influence somebody and you have to get your uh, protection up and, and be steeped in truth and don't let go of it later in Hebrews the writer says see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no, a root of bitterness grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And I think that's a good description of what we're talking about now. So learning to value scripture above constantly changing popular public morality is crucial. Value scripture over popular public morality that changes Generation after generation, but God doesn't change. He's timeless. So-called authorities will try to make their version of morality seem virtuous, but we only acknowledge one authority, and that authority is God. You live in a world where there are authorities all over the place, all the time. And what's their authority generally? Celebrity. Celebrity. 
That's who we acknowledge as the authorities, and people are willing to give their faith away on the basis of something like that when we have a timeless, eternal God who calls us to faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the scripture and its truth. I pray that you'll help us as we live our lives to be faithful to you. God, not to be, uh, not to drift away, not to become dull and lazy, not to stop listening. Help us to be attentive to your voice and to your truth. And we pray, Father, that you'll use your word in our life to strengthen us and to help us as we follow after you. And we pray it in Christ's name. This is an encouragement at this time of the service for anyone who has a decision that they might want to make, a commitment and following through.